Hi, this is Arij Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. So we've been in lockdown for most of the year here in Melbourne and the social safety nets are slowly being rolled back for those entitled to them. But what about the 10% of our workforce that's left out? How are they faring? Not very well, according to a recent report from the Migrant Worker Justice Initiative. I'm fortunate to have Neha Maddock, who is a National Co-Director of Democracy in Colour, on the line to talk me through what the hell is going on. Neha, thanks for taking the time. Hi. excited to be here. So I remember really worrying about the health and finances of my students and other international students in March. And when I spoke to them, they were kind of freaking out. Seven months later, they're in an even worse off position. What do we know about how international students specifically are faring in these hard times? Well, it's interesting with international students because they are some of the hardest kids. But in many cases, in, depending on what state they're in, some of them have actually been able to access wage subsidies. However, the wage subsidies they have been able to access have generally been one-off or have been short-term. So again, they don't have any any sense of security alongside the two million other people who've been completely left out. But international students, what they've been experiencing, and I guess some of some of the ideas out there that are perpetuated are that they that they have lots of money or that they mm. they come from rich families, which is not necessarily the case. What I think a lot of Australians don't understand is that, especially when you go to Asia, you'll say there are ads up all over the place advertising Australia as though it's a place of uh, job abundance and a place where you can come study and make a life for yourself. And so this is how Australia advertises itself to people internationally. And then to think that people do come here seeking good fortune like anyone else who lives here does. And they come here looking for an exciting couple of years abroad, just like many Australians do when they also study abroad, only to find that they're completely left behind by this government. And this idea as well that, that they're supposed to have money in the bank to study here. Well, yes, they are They are meant to have some, some savings. However, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that if you secure a job in Australia, to think that, okay, well, I can rely on this part-time job or I can rely relatively on this casual job to, to make up some of that shortfall because no one sees a pandemic coming. No. No one sees their job shutting down the next day and absolutely no work in the service industry, in other industries like it, for months and months ahead. And I guess Scott Morrison basically said, if you can't afford to be here, go back. Many people have, but many others can't. Why is that? Yeah, if you look at some of the prices for international travel at the moment, they are pretty outrageous. So for many people, if they're, say, paying significant amounts of money to study here or to live and work here, they are then also they're trying to live, trying to live locally. They may have lost their job, so that obviously is a massive expense. You then look at some of those flats home, some of them are up to $5,000. On top of that, Australian border controls mean that it's not the easiest at the moment to actually leave Australia. And then in addition, many, many countries have not yet opened their borders, particularly some of those countries in Asia, which is where many of the temporary visa holders in Australia are from. Mm. Is there something kind of fundamentally wrong with that framing though, like in the way that people are viewed here? Like there's something, I don't know, to me there's something really yuck and sinister about people coming to Australia to work and study, Australia receiving them, this country benefiting greatly from their contributions, not just economically but socially, and then almost kind of discarding them in the midst of a pandemic, which I can see the kind of economic rationale to treat people like cash cows, obviously. But there's something kind of inhumane to put people in this impossible position. So what do you think this says about our society? Oh, absolutely. So what the one thing that I find so interesting is that this government claims that they are excellent economic managers. They claim that they are the experts when it comes to this. But I would really, I would really counter that. The economy is people. The economy is 
every single one of us who pays tax, who contributes to the world that we want to see. As taxpayers, we all have a right to services and to access to help when we need it. So people who are temporary visa holders are all taxpayers. They contribute to our society. They send their kids to local schools. They work in our cafes. They're doing some of the most essential work, or they were before they, many of them lost their jobs. To think that our government would simply turn their backs on a group of people simply because they're not Australian. All that says to me, and I'm sure to many, many other people of colour out there, is that you can't rely on this government. You can't rely on Australia to have your back. And it's because so many of these people are people of colour. It doesn't send a message of hope or unity, which is exactly what you want during a global crisis. What it says is that this government will clamp down based on race on people who are already vulnerable. And to me, that's really scary. And it's it sends a message of the exact opposite. It sends a message of fear and division. And it's what many of us call a dog whistle. So what that often means is you sometimes say something to signal something else. So when you say, this is for Australians only, that can sound really nice and that can sound really simple. But what that often sends a message of is we think Australians are a certain type of person. We probably think they're a white blonde speech goer. They're not a temporary visa holder working in a on a farm or in a cafe. And so the implied message is that we're here to support white people. We're here to support white Australia. We're not here to support the people who are just trying to make a life here. In the report, there was there's a clear kind of indication that temporary visa holders feel kind of rejected by Australia to some extent, despite mm. their very deep engagement with community and society, there is a sense of rejection. What have people been saying and what kind of experiences are people having? Yeah, so a lot of the comments that came through the report were quite quite similar and quite shocking. I wasn't actively involved in the report, so I'm sure that there are, there are others who can speak far more deeply to this. But certainly lots of comments came through that were along the lines of, I pay tax here, my children go to school here, mm. I have friends and family here, like people have made their lives here. And I think as well what most people don't realise is that our visa system is really complex. Mm. It costs a lot of money, so people save thousands and thousands of dollars each year to renew their visas, to go through the next stage of the visa process, to go from temporary visa holder permanent resident, a citizen. These hoops take years to get through and often people build entire lives and social networks in that process. And to think that so many of these people say that they've made Australia their home, they feel like this is where they live, where they belong, and that this is just a rejection. They feel like it's a slap in the face. Like, imagine going to someone's home or going to live, going to rent somewhere. You're told that this is your home, you're told that this is where you can live, and eventually you'll be able to have your own stake in it, only to then be turfed out at the drop of the hat, at the slightest inconvenience and told that you're no longer welcome. And it's just, it's going. And, you know, the federal government clearly refuses to plug this gap but they've kind of started already like I said rolling back social safety nets for permanent residents and citizens so who's supporting these communities who's supporting temporary visa holders it's a real mix and a lot of it has come from grassroots pressure a lot of it has come from people looking around at at those that they love that they care about and going I can't believe that this is happening to my friend my neighbor my co-worker so the people who are ultimately supporting them are grassroots mutual aid groups, mm-hmm. friends and family. So a lot of a lot of Australian friends and family. Unions have been doing quite a lot of work to support their members to help them through some of the, the basics at the moment. There's also been a lot of support work done by a range of not-for-profits. And then when it comes to actual systems change, we have, as a, as a coalition of organisations, been successful in pushing state governments to deliver short-term or one-off payments to temporary visa holders and also lots of local councils. So as a Rocket in Colour, we've been successful in getting up to 14 local councils signed up to a pledge to provide income or in-kind support to temporary visa holders. We're hoping to increase that and get dozens and dozens more because someone someone has to do it. Mm. Otherwise, people will end up homeless. People will 
be on the streets and that's not exactly the safest thing in a pandemic either. You know, in recent times, just in the last couple of weeks, there's been an announcement that in order to come to Australia, even to a spousal visa, English language adequate, in inverted commas, whatever that actually means, in English language skills will be a must. And I think to a lot of people that might be, you know, kind of a given and, well, obviously that's what needs to happen. But to so many people, including so many members of my family, extended and immediate, that would mean that that none of them would be in this country at all and none of their kids would be here. And so it actually has a big impact on the lives of people who from non-English speaking backgrounds and their immigration process. What do you think the government is saying when they say, if you can't speak English, you can't become an Australian citizen? It's almost verbatim from the white Australian policy from the 19, what was the early 1900s mm-hmm. up to the 1950s or 60s. If you look at the English language test that was required there, it was deliberately set up for people to fail. It was set up for people from, who weren't from you know, England, Canada, America, etc. to fail that test. And I wouldn't be... I wouldn't be surprised if there were similar issues with this proposal as well. We've seen, like research has shown that English language tests sometimes fail native English speakers mm-hmm. based on accent. So if you've got a really strong Australian accent or maybe a really strong Southern American accent, you could be, you could get failed simply because the system doesn't pick up on you correctly. <laughs> so obviously this is not the best way to test someone's proficiency. And then as well, there's, there are so many other questions that come up, right? Like who is an English speaker or what is the best way to speak English? I mean, if you look at it by the numbers, the majority of English speakers in the world live in India. And so should we all be speaking English in the way that they do in India? I'm not sure that that's what this government intended. I'm not sure that that's what most Australians would expect from this either. But I think that there are a lot of questions raised, and I think that a lot of them can't be answered in a simple way, because this is not a simple test. It's not. And I think that the signal that that sends is that this hasn't been thought through. This, this is not actually about English language. It's not about proficiency. Because if it was, it would be set up very differently or it wouldn't be set up at all because in this global world, in a a sort of post-colonial world, how do you even test someone's English? Ultimately, what this is about is trying to, again, keep out people of colour, trying to keep out a particular type of migrant and encourage another type of migrant. It's wanting to encourage people from England. It's wanting to encourage people from the USA rather than wanting to bring in people from from other parts of the world. And it just seems very strange. Mm. Again, when we've got a global crisis, when we've got a recession in Australia... Why choose this policy? What are you trying to achieve? What is its purpose? And why now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all very pertinent questions. I would love someone to ask the Prime Minister of this country. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Neha. And thank you so much for all the awesome work you guys do over at Democracy in Colour. No, thank you so much. Neha Maddock is the National Co-Director of Democracy in Colour, a racial justice organisation led by and for people of colour. And if you want to read the Migrant Workers Justice Initiative report for yourself, you can find it online. And if you want to check out more from Democracy in Colour, you can jump on democracyincolour.org and find them on all the socials. Robin Oxley is a Tharawa woman and has family connections to Yorta Yorta. She's an activist and a lecturer in criminology at Western Sydney University. Robin's work primarily focuses on human rights, social justice, systemic racism and improving outcomes for Aboriginal people in relation to the criminal justice system. And last month she wrote a piece for Indigenous X and The Guardian titled Defunding the Police and Abolishing Prisons in Australia Are Not Radical Ideas. Robin, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, on this show, we often have conversations with people about criminal justice and the system, and I've been thinking about why. Why do I end up speaking with so many different people about this? And the only answer I've really come up with is that the criminal justice system is where we see very clearly the deep-rooted injustices faced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, poor people, disabled people and and other marginalised communities. And and then when you work your way back, you look and you 
see the conditions that brought people into the system, we then see kind of all of the cracks in society, racist policies, all of the all of the stuff that puts people in these positions. Has this been an observation of yours within the work that you do in the field of criminology? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, criminology, we study crime, basically. But what that entails is more so looking at policies and legislation and the social justice side of things, but the social side of crime and why certain policies and legislation is established and what that means for certain minority groups and what it means for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be under the screening of a criminal justice system, which is such a westernised systemic institution. Like I call it the same as universities, like historical white institutions. That's all they are. And I think, you know, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to fall under that, it's a system that was designed by white men for white men. So there is no room for any other group in society within the criminal justice system. And what I mean by that is they target those poor minority, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, cold women, all those different minorities that are in society and they're deemed deficits. So, you know, they make up the prison system, they make the businesses flow. It's a terrible cycle to be part of, but, you know, this is what we have with the criminal justice system. Yeah, absolutely. And often when this discourse is had, particularly in mainstream, it is just about the criminality or the criminal behaviour or the crime or whatever it might be. And there's no real understanding or context of someone's lived experience. What has brought someone into this position? Yeah, I think when it comes to the criminal justice system, you know, we've got police courts corrections. That's basically how it runs. And it always seems to be at the end of the process. So when we get to corrections and people are being released, that seems to be where they want to fix the problem. And it's too late. We need to be going back to policing. We need to go back to psychological factors, biological factors of offending, intergenerational offending, intergenerational trauma. Like there's so many different areas there where we need to address right at the beginning. Whereas, yeah, the criminal justice system seems to we get to the end and then they're like, okay, we've got this big problem of overrepresentation, and we need the Aboriginal community to fix it now. This is where you get to practice your self-determination and fix the problem that they created. So we've got this huge, huge issue when it comes to the criminal justice system. They never want to seem to address it right at the beginning. It's always at the end. And let's talk about police and let's talk about discretionary powers. What are they and what is inherently wrong with the way that they're being applied? So police discretionary powers, it gives the police ability to make decisions on whether they're going to arrest someone or not, stop them, find them. They're somewhat vague as well. So it's up to police whether they want to stop someone, want to arrest someone, want to find someone. And it means that the officers are giving some sort of leeway uh, which they can make choices that you know, impact people at the end of the day through this. It's a policing, obviously a policing method, a policing practice. But what it means is, so for an example, we look at Arnie Tenya Day's case. She was on a train, drunk, fell asleep, wasn't annoying anyone, wasn't being loud, wasn't being rowdy, wasn't being a public nuisance at all. And the train driver, rather than calling a health response or calling for health response, called police instead. So then police have taken her away, Aboriginal woman, drunk, on a train, anyone else who's lived in society. I mean, I've been drunk on a train plenty of times and I guess that's the fair-skinned Aboriginal in me that kind of will get away with it. But doesn't I don't expect, you know, I expect it to make bank at home, not die in custody as what happened at 10 a day. So police then could have used their discretion and let her off with a warning or driven her home rather than driving her to a police station where she injured herself quite a few times, a number of times she she banged her head and then yeah, ended up dying 17 days later after she was brought in. So we see kind of where police can use their discretion, where they didn't and they won't when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and also other minorities like cold, um, you know, Sudanese youth at the moment is just, they're just getting, yeah, the raw end of the stick there when it comes to police discretion. It's hard to imagine it outside of the system that we see here. And that's, I guess, the next point that I want to come to, and that's this concept of defunding the police. What would defunding the police as this big institution that is involved in so many of these systemic problems, what would that look like? Well, it would look exactly like how we defund health and how we defund education and how we defund research. It would look exactly the same. So rather than continuing to pour all of this money into policing and, you know, we see 
so many negative effects of policing. We see police brutality, we see racial profiling, racialization of, of policing as well through their different policing methods. They're over-policing, like I said, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, people of colour, under-policing of white people, the misuse of police discretion, police culture. All of these things equate to the overrepresentation of what we have in the prison system because that's where it starts. People have their experience with the criminal justice system with police. They begin. So to defund it means just to strip it all back. And when we see it happen in education, we see it happen in health, we see it happen in housing and employment. And there's so many different other areas where where we defund and no one seems to bat an eyelid about it. But when it comes to police, it's like, oh, no, they're the people that are supposed to be saving us and supposed to be forcing the law. And and idea of police and what it means in society today is just so damaging to society in that this over-reliance on punishment is just constant and I and it's it's worrying because it's growing and growing and growing and even you know Victoria in lockdown we had the curfews what did what what was the point of that there was no point there was basically just to police people and keep them in at their homes from you know 8 p.m till 5 a.m in the morning so no one was out um past past 8 p.m so we see all of these powers given to police so we need to strip those powers back and we need to start looking at things that are happening in society as a health response and as a social response rather than a punitive measure. And it's interesting because you're absolutely right. Like there's this social, like moral projection that punishment and policing people and keeping people in line makes for like a safe society. But in mm. Australia, we have some of the highest rates of recidivism in inverted commas I'm you know we're on radio I'm making inverted commas because people it's a revolving door you just you know oftentimes there's that like pipeline of foster care to youth justice to adult prisons and that is just a lifetime for people so clearly it's not working Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a really important point to make is that it's beginning at youth. We see them in the care system and home uh, resi care and then into youth justice and then into adult prisons. And it's just this cycle that we actually need to break. We need to kind of unpack it and see what's happening and actually direct funds into services that are going to address the social issues rather than yeah constantly punishing and constantly just yeah this idea that you know, oh, we've got police out, we must feel safe. Well, I don't feel safe with police around me. And that's an intergenerational thing. Most people in society who have had experiences with the criminal justice system know that it's violent, know that it's racist and know that it's discriminatory. So there is no trust. There is no trust with police. So how do we how do we move forward? We need to defund, we need to strip them and just, you know, look at health responses and social social responses rather than, mm. like I said, yeah punishment and even like using and redirecting some of that money to put into these responses because every year they get cut like every year health housing employment all of that stuff gets cut and they're such important services but also they are big reasons for why people end up locked up like housing is so important when you consider it in the context of the criminal justice system yeah, definitely. And that's, you know, that's one of the parole ticks, you know, to have housing. If you don't have housing, then, you know, you breach parole, you're straight back in maximum. So this is where we see this recidivism. When we talk about recidivism in general and that, you know, revolving door, where the seriousness of Victorian government lies with rehabilitation, like rehabilitation is a farce. We all know that. And we know that because there's no commitment to it and there's been no money been established around rehabilitation. And it's one of the sentencing aims of 1991 in Victoria. So I find it really hypocritical that, you know, they'll sentence someone to be rehabilitated, but then when they're in prison, there's actually nothing there for them to succeed when they're out there. For instance, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, we've got the Torch Project, which is which is great. Like, it's a good project and it means that Aboriginal people can practice culture um, through artwork or sculptures or artefacts, however they can express their culture, but they're doing it within the four walls of the prison system. Now, what we need to do is get them out into community and connecting with community, teaching them that culture, because that culture is stuck behind the you know the prison system and that knowledge is is stays there it doesn't pass on to the next you know the future generations and you know we're just going to have more stolen generations more stolen culture lost culture lost language all of these things but you know when it comes to rehabilitation and recidivism we need to be serious about it we need to be serious if it is going to be a sentencing aim then we need to work out 
why there is no money going into that and why we have more cells being built out of Camberwell and trying to grow more beds in the prison system rather than looking at the end product, like the end product, here we go again. But, you know, looking at how we're going to stop people from reoffending and succeeding in society. Is that what we want? We want people to succeed, you know, surely. Surely we don't want people to be locked up, right? Surely a good society is one where people are not over-incarcerated or incarcerated full stop. Surely a society that functions at its best is one where there, are no, where there are no prisons, right? Like that just seems like an ideal end goal. But I don't know, I feel like that might conflict with the end goal of this system, even though they might say it is, you know, and it's quite, a, it's quite an interesting tension because we see it and more and more people are being locked up. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting points about this is that, you know, prisons are privatised, they're a business, so they're there to make money. So how they make money is, is filling the beds. So how do they fill the beds out? They over-police. They make sure that, you know, we fill those beds up with people that, you know, are these this deficit idea in society and, and ones that aren't contributing or aren't, you know, are always drunk or inherently criminal or, you know, they build these social constructs of what it is to be criminal and then they just continue that down the line through the police courts corrections and then, yeah, we see them in prisons and they're just numbers are growing, more beds are being built. Yeah, it's just it's a it's a economic, definitely an economic bonus to have your prisons fill, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, if you're building one, you want to fill it up, right? When you're building <laughs> yeah. new ones every few years, you definitely want to fill it up with people. How do we start rolling this back? Or what does it look like to start rolling this back? Because we've it's really just been getting worse. So I think this whole myth about prison abolition is just pulling down the prisons and then that's it, letting people run free. It's not the case at all. You know, there are bad people in society. There are mad people in society. There are people that do need help and do need assistance in order to overcome issues, which would be social, psychological, biological, environmental. Like there's so many different facets of it. But rather than locking them up in a, you know, violent, it's full of systemic racism prisons and the criminal justice system will stop. So rather than having them constantly exposed to that, we need to be starting to dismantle the systems that built prisons. So we need to start defunding police. We need to start looking at courts and how they operate, even court, you know, um, judicial discretion as well when it comes to sentencing. And we need to look at the sentencing aims. So there's, it's the whole criminal justice system as a, you know, as a whole needs to be unpacked stripped back. We need to stop policies that over-police people, such as, you know, we're supposed to be abolishing the summary offence of public drunkenness back in August last year, but we haven't yet, have we? So, you know, there's these these promises that have been made and these commitments and so forth, but, you know, we can get a, we can get a curfew policy in straight away. We can get anything that's health response. And I mean health response because all of these things that I'm talking about are health responses, but I'm talking about that fear of COVID and the fear that people are going to be infected by COVID and then we quickly need to make up these laws. Well, people have been impacted by public drunkenness. People have died because of public drunkenness. So why aren't we serious about that? Why aren't we on the front foot of decriminalising that summary offence? So it's about, you know, pulling down those legislations, unpacking those policies, changing the way that police do business and changing the way that they use their discretion, they use their powers, you know, their body cam is just, that's ridiculous. I just, I, I just beyond how they can just turn it off and, you know, there's no accountability there. But yeah, there's got to be more, you know, accountability with policing. But yeah, to strip it all back, we just need to look at where the funding's going, make decisions, and I'm talking self-determination here with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, make the decisions on where this money goes. We need housing, we need health, we need employment, and we need social things to to keep people busy and to keep them engaged in community and to keep them committed to community as well. So that's where we need to be looking at spending our money rather than prisons, building more prisons and beds. Yeah, it's about, like, reimagining what kind of society we want to live in and, like, what we prioritise and what we value and how we deal with people who are the most systemically marginalised and, you know, really actually having that conversation, actually taking that on and making that the responsibility of everyone and not just a decision that is made by a police officer Mm -hmm. or a judge or a sophisticated legal team or whatever it might be. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think that's um, a huge, a huge, I guess, one of the factors that does influence on you know, one of the underlying factors on overrepresentation is access to justice. Who has that? <laughs> we know that poor people don't have 
you know, the, the appropriate access to justice. And why is that? Because the money's not there. So do we put the money there? Do we take it out of, you know, other, other areas of prisons or courts, policing? And yeah, so we need to start boosting up all areas of social and emotional well-being and how, like I said, housing, health, all that stuff. Robin, it's been so great chatting with you. Thank you so much for your insights and all the work that you do. My pleasure. It's been great. Robin Oxley is a Tharawa woman and has family connections to Yorta Yorta. She's an activist and a lecturer in criminology at Western Sydney University. Robin's work primarily focuses on human rights, social justice, systemic racism and improving outcomes for Aboriginal people in relation to the criminal justice system. And last month she wrote a piece for Indigenous X and The Guardian titled Defunding the Police and Abolishing Prisons in Australia are not radical ideas. You can jump on The Guardian website if you do want to check it out. Cole Brown is a writer, commentator and author of Grey Boy, Finding Blackness in a White World. And we're really fortunate to have him on the line this morning to chat a bit about the book and a few other things. Cole, thank you for joining me on Triple R. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So your book is called Grey Boy, Finding Blackness in a White World. And the first thing that I thought of before even cracking it open was an interview I got to do with Britt Bennett about her book, The Vanishing Half, the Melbourne Writers' Festival. And the book really complicates race and the notion of, like, performing blackness and whiteness. And, you know, we're taught at uni that race is a construct and, you know, there's so many things that happen when you really start to think about race. So I guess I want to ask you, how do you define your blackness for yourself? Man, that is uh, a big question. (laughs) Um, Let's just start there. (laughs) <laughs> One, I should say that that uh, I'm jealous of you that you get to speak with Britt. I, I, I'm obviously familiar with the book, and that's pretty fantastic. I think that that's really, you know, that question, sort of seeking the answer to that question is really the story of the narrative that I try to weave here. How do I define my blackness? My blackness is at least half my mother's side, which is Ethiopian, and the many cultural influences that are there. But it's also at least half my father's side, which is black American, and sort of steeped in a real black American experience in West Virginia and Indiana. And there's a third half, if there can be. It's my own distinct experience, you know, sort of operating in white space and and having a very different experience from either of my parents. I think that those three influences probably mix into a pot of kind of who I am today that are all kind of necessarily viewed through the lens of, obviously, my race. Mm. It's amazing because, you know, people have coined that, like the third culture kid, you know, that, you know, you're living in these several worlds so whether it is the you know for myself as I'm I'm Eritrean so we're neighbors um and my wow. my family is born my I'm born here my family's from Eritrea and then living in Australia and my identity kind of engages with you know Australian identity whatever that is and being black in Australia and then of course the Eritrean culture and then of course neither you know the the melding and the mixing of both of those is not necessarily half of one it is its own thing in and of itself. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's kind of the story of you know, first-generation kids, almost no matter where you go. As you would know well, you know, Eritrea and Ethiopia has kind of a very distinct culture that we are very proud of. Mm-hmm. And some of those cultural elements seem sort of not to clearly fit, particularly in an American context, are very clearly distinct from some of the American cultural elements. So I do think that that leaves us kids some space to navigate. Yeah. Not really black as a term, as an identity is mentioned right at the top of the book. It's clear, you know, what white people are saying to you about you when you're called not really black. And I've experienced that in the past before. You write, it's a term of endearment, a stamp of approval and acknowledgement of civility. But I want to know what are white people, young and old, saying about themselves and how they view themselves in relation to black people when someone like you is considered not really black, but other people are really black? I think that it's important, all of those descriptions that I use for the term stamp of approval and acknowledgement of civility and so forth, it's important to say that it's how they view it Mm. when giving it to me, not how I view it myself. (laughs) And I think there is clearly a construct of superiority when one uses that phrase, whether one realizes it or not, to say, here are the qualities that I see of myself in you, and therefore you are above how I see or apart from how I see your broader race. There's clearly like a, you know, you're part of me and therefore you must be better than them. Again, I'm not sure that when that term is used, I'm not sure all of those things are 
for that element of it is clearly thought through, frankly. I think that it was just sort of thrown off the cuff without really sort of an appreciation for the words that are coming out of your mouth, frankly. Yeah. And, you know, this book, Grey Boy, Finding Blackness in a White World, isn't necessarily just about finding blackness in the white world that is the United States, but it's the specific experiences of, you know, privileged spaces in the United States, spaces of wealth and class And, you know, you went to a high school that was predominantly white, but there were some other black people who were there who were of the same kind of social status and others who were scholarship kids, in inverted commas. And I want to know, like, what other kind of relationships that happen in a school context like that when black people of varying different lived experiences are in the same space? You know, I think that there's probably an element of it that is just high school dynamics that kind of happen, you know, cross-culturally and no matter where you are, you know, there's a bunch of high school kids trying to figure it out. But I think that the specific element that is blackness, I think that the way that I talk about the black table in the book, Mm. there's a chapter called the black table, which was like a specific literal table in the lunchroom where all of the black kids sat. It was also all of us that sat around that table. And race was really, in many cases, the only thing that we had in common, Mm. frankly. There was a lot of difference. I mean, some of my best friends to this day are kids that I sat around that table with. And you don't look at us kind of on paper and see many similarities between us. But because we were black and inhabiting that space together, we ended up having very similar experiences while trying to walk through it, you know, inhabiting a space that was not intended for us. We had some, you know, similar struggles at times. And I think that that similarity was enough of a foundation that we could can make up some experiences of our own along the way. Mm. It's amazing because in the formation of any kind of friendships, depending on where you are, it doesn't have to necessarily be on like racial lines or whatever that means. There is only, you know, there needs to be some similarity, a little bit. It doesn't have to be everything because if it's everything, you're just being friends with yourself, which, you know, we love it. It's great. But there is, you know, this kind of interaction that does happen between different black people you know here in Australia of course it's very different blackness it's a little bit broader but when I speak to like the African experience you know in Melbourne in particular we're kind of in different areas and people who came in the you know late 80s or their parents came in the late 80s early 90s were established in different parts of the city and then newer arrivals were established in different parts of the city and now people are kind of moving to the same areas and so often what happens is these interactions are more kind of neighborhood dependent in Melbourne at least and yeah and you're absolutely right that defining factor is the fact that you're black your entire childhood might be completely different but that defining factor is the fact that you're black yeah and I I actually you know I wrote a I wrote a piece for the Sydney Morning Herald at one point and and it sort of centered on the the one month of life I have spent in Melbourne uh, (laughs) when I first got to this country and was struck frankly by just how few black people I saw and it's exactly because of what you're describing, I'm sure. It's because, you know, I was there on work and was in sort of one part of the city that I imagine is just not where we are. Mm-hmm. But Philly wasn't like that in so many ways. I mean, where I grew up, Philly is a city of neighborhoods. But I think it's hard to traverse that city and not see sort of the many different pockets that live there and exist there. And and, and I was struck by that and, frankly, like, disrupted for a little while. I mean, like, like I had just never, not since I was a child and even then, had I been sort of so clearly the only black person in the room for extended periods of time. It's interesting that you mentioned Philly because, you know, from the perspective of like a black person who's not from the US, from like media and television and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the kind of perception of what Philly is, is not one that has kind of like class divides or whatever that might be, which, you know, every city, of course, has. It's a specific representation of what the black experience in Philly is. And it's not necessarily one that's represented in this book. Yeah, and I think that, one, like, just to state clearly, Philly has very stark classifieds, but Philly is, you know, a majority-minority city, and it's hard to move around Philly and just ignore black people or ignore economically disadvantaged people. And I say that because there are cities where that's not the case. There are cities where, you know, you could... I think Chicago was in many ways like that, where you could kind of live in the north side of Chicago, where where I at one point was living and working, and forget that there was a whole other side of Chicago, mm. because it is just so starkly separated. Philly kind of neighborhoods, in many ways, are pushed up next to each other, and I think that that you know, shaped my experience growing up in that city. Just to kind of take a different turn now, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the fact that there is quite a lot of 
pride in being, you know, the the first for many people, the first black president, first woman CEO of a company, first in the family to finish high school, you know, first to finish university, whatever. And of course, it's a testament to the capacity to achieve something despite the real struggle to get there. But it's also really lonely and like a deep burden to be the first or the only. Have you kind of engaged with that a little bit? I think there is an element of well, I mean, first, like I'm not, I'm not the first in my family to do much. My parents worked hard and checked a lot of those boxes before I could get to them. But I do think that in a lot of the circles that I walk in, there is an element of sort of an expectation that you are representing for your race. And that's not a new insight, right? I mean, I think that's been written about black writers and thinkers for, for a long time. But there is an expectation that, sort of, you know, my actions are not attributable to me as an individual, but, but me as a member of this group. And that, of course, is always a burden. That's something that weighs on one when, you know, when thinking how best to operate. There's a moment in the book that kind of made me pause more than others. And it was when you mentioned Mike Brown and his murder. And you remember thinking, what if it were me? Not necessarily because of the very, you know, genuine legitimate fear you might have of dying this way, but because you know, you're different and maybe your death would mean something different in the US because of who you are. I found this reflection to be so honest and revealing and I can see exactly where that thinking may have come from in that moment. Tell me a little bit about that and what you thought about who you were within the context of the US. Yeah, I think that that speaks to so clearly just sort of internalised oppression, frankly, because that's not, a, that's not a thought that I consciously had for a very long time. But when I realized it, it really made me uncomfortable and I was frankly ashamed that I was having mm. it. So the, the thought was essentially exactly what you just said. I, I think that there was some assumption that I held that if I were to go the way of Michael Brown, if I were to be essentially murdered by a representative of the state, that that would mean something to people. That, you know, because of this privilege that I've been sort of swaddled in because I was a Georgetown student at the time, I think that there was an assumption, you know, like sort of a, an unconscious assumption that, that my life has, has value. So I write about that, again, in a way that, that I'm ashamed of, <laughs> because, because when reflecting on that, you know, I thought about sort of the hubris required to make that leap, one, but then two, that it's just not correct. Besides the fact that there is massive hubris involved in that, and besides the fact that internalizing and sort of adopting a theory on race and value that clearly oppresses my people, besides all of that, there's also the fact that it's just not true. Mm. You know, if, if this summer, I, I guess here, winter, uh, if the American summer has shown us anything, it is that these markings and innocence, perceived innocence, does not protect one from, you know, kind of the worst fates imaginable. Coming to that realization, coming to the realization that sort of I am no safer and, and no more valuable than any of these other incredibly tragic cases is a difficult thing to come to terms with. Yeah. And as you said, you know, it's something that's internalised, right, and it's the experience that you think and then when you realise and life kind of hits you in the face, you know that, in fact, right. that that's just not the case and it can't be the case. Like, there's there's no way. There are so many cases in the US of people of high-privileged black people of, of, you know, wealth, status or whatever who are in these very similar circumstances. It's not the same, of course, because there are different, you know, the class divide does impact your safety to some extent, but it's definitely not going to protect you from police violence if you're just right. walking around. Yeah, and I think that, one, there's the element of protection, but two, there's just the element of value, mm. of, of thinking that class or any of those other sort of markings of privilege, somehow they endow greater value. Mm. So I guess that in some ways that's like the definition of elitism, and that must be rejected, yes. <laughs> you know, like because it's just not the case. I mean, we've seen so many cases... Again, irrespective of class, just of innocence, where lives were lost, lives were ended. And it's clear that that doesn't discriminate. Yeah. It was such a revealing moment, and there's many moments in the book that are that revealing and that honest. And, you know, as you mentioned, like moments of shame for you to reveal. So how do you decide how much of yourself to reveal in a book? <laughs> right. It was difficult for me. You know, this book took me a really long time to write. It just released a couple of weeks ago. On um, September 15th, I think I started it probably September 1st, four years prior. So it took me a full four years to, to write. And, and part of the reason was exactly what you're getting at, was just wrestling with, there was the portion that was sort of how much to reveal. I think there was also the portion of just working through what it was, like, like what there was to reveal. You know, like coming to some conclusions about myself and, and how I've walked through the world that I then need to decide whether or not to share. I ultimately... 
and you know you've you've read it and and hopefully come to this realization at some point in the book that like I didn't leave I didn't leave much out. Mm. Um, I ultimately decided to kind of put out of mind anyone that might eventually read it and go about the project of like just trying to be honest with this experience and as ruthlessly honest as possible because I thought it was important. I thought it was important to share both the good and the bad because I want this experience to be taken seriously. Yeah. Who are you speaking to in this book when you were writing it? Who was the person that you were writing it to? Is it to yourself? Is it to a particular audience of black people or anyone? So it actually, to the point I just made, no one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wrote this in a way that I think one writes a diary. I think that in the early years of writing this book, of working on this project, I think I had some of those readers in mind, family members and kids that are growing up like me and so forth. Or actually, in an earliest version, white people writ large were kind of the audience. And all of that had to be pushed out. Because when you begin writing to somebody, it sort of, it crafts the way in which you tell your story. And I just didn't, I didn't want that. I wanted this to be honest as far as it could be in my estimation. In order to get there, I needed to push out any sense of an audience. Yeah, it's really honest. It's very, like, I don't know if I would have the confidence or the ability to leave the kind of rawness that you have on those pages, but I'm thankful that you did do it because it's a really beautiful collection of different stories. I imagine you've been asked this a lot, but is it strange watching the US go through so much in the last little while being in Australia? Uh, Strange is one word for it. Uh, Despairing, um, like, you know, uh, hope-sucking. I mean, like, there are other words for it, too. I think that America is, is going through, like, a really difficult reckoning right now. I think that there's one bag of issues, which is sort of our political leadership or lack thereof. There's another bag of issues that is that extends much further in history than four years ago in our last election. And this racial reckoning, you know, everyone I know and love is still in the U.S. And it's really difficult to watch a lot of that and feel as though, you know, I should be within arm's reach and not being able to. I think that, yes, that's been tough. Mm. Do you have a better understanding of how the U.S. is perceived from, like, other countries or another country now that you're watching it unfold from afar? I think so. I think I have, if not a better understanding, certainly sort of a more acute sensitivity to it, more acute awareness to it. And if you feel differently than this, tell me. But I feel as though, particularly when I came here, I immediately got the sense that Australia looks to the U.S. uh, for a lot of like its cultural cue. So much American media is here and Australians, I am perpetually blown away by how much American stuff Australians can recite to me, whereas Americans are not nearly as familiar with Australian politics and so forth. And because of that, because of the, you know, how our countries have been intertwined for so many decades, I'm acutely aware of, of you know, how we're abdicating our role on a global stage, how we're really damaging our reputation. And I think that that'll have consequences long in the future, certainly beyond uh, the next four years. Yeah. I mean, I've always felt that the relationship between Australia and the US is very like a one-sided friendship. One person is super keen on it and the other one is kind of like, cool. Yeah, I don't know what you guys get up to down there, but, you know, if you could just vote in this United Nations thing for me and just continue to come and, you know, invade lots of different countries alongside me, you know, that's that's kind of the, the way that the relationship flourishes in Australia. It's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Again, again you said it, not me. But <laughs> it's it's but very I have, accurate. I have been blown away by, particularly as it relates to politics, you mentioned I do commentary sometimes on the ABC and stuff, and I'll have these conversations sort of like immediately before, immediately after about U.S. politics. And, like, I run into people just on the street that know more about U.S. politics than most of my American friends know about U.S. politics. Yeah. I've just been blown away by that facet of it, by just how familiar Australians are with the ongoings of, of kind of American culture. There's something a little bit sinister about it because in Australia, a lot of people know more about US politics than Australian politics. But even when it came to like the Black Lives Matter movement here in Australia, it was this, you know, there was a lot of people kind of really resenting the US for its treatment of black people and not acknowledging in any way the ways in which this country treats black right. people, Aboriginal Torres Strait right. Islander people, other Africans, Melanesian no. people how, you know, these communities, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, make up the vast majority of those locked up. And so there's also that kind of part of it that's a little bit sinister. You know, it's it's interesting. I, as I mentioned, I wrote this article for the Sydney Morning Herald in, in the in the wake of George Floyd's killing, and I mentioned in it that sort of I was pleasantly surprised being in Melbourne 
that I didn't face a lot of the racial prejudice that I feel I face on a regular basis in the U.S. I was just talking to Stan Grant about this because he asked me this question. And the response to that article was in so many cases like, Cole, why are you papering over the struggle that we have here, the Mm -hmm. oppression that is faced here by black people in this country? It was not my intention at all. I mean, mind you, I had literally gotten off the plane maybe a month earlier. Like, I was just not, you know, there's a whole history there that, that I could not possibly have appreciated at that point. I was just trying to speak to my own experience. But I do feel as though some people took that article that I wrote and kind of lifted it up as, like, see, we're, we're the good guys. <laughs> like, yeah. see, we're not so bad. See how good of an experience this this black guy had in our city. And I want to state clearly that that was not the intent, nor was that my view. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when you travel, though, right? Like, I was in, like, spent some time in the US, in New York City. I was in London just recently. And I'm always like, oh, it's just so much nicer here. And it's just that experience of, like, moving around to different places and not taking on that baggage of local blackness, right? Or And that is definitely part of that experience. Absolutely. And history informs that experience, right? So so when you're in it, when you're in a context that doesn't have a history, it makes a difference. It makes a real difference. Yeah. Just before I let you go, this is a question that I ask because I can't not. But listen, some of the testimonials about this book (laughs) floored me. Like, (laughs) like, FYI, for you, if you don't, you know, if you haven't got the book right in front of you, like I do, Grey Boy's foreword is written by the Let Me Turn Team Vogue Around, Elaine Welteroth. Afterward, by Michael Eric Dyson. Testimonials by Misty Copeland, Diddy. You know, the late, great Andre Harrell, Queen Latifah. It's a who's who of, like, black American celebrity. How does that, like, how is the question, how? (laughs) Um, It it took a long time is the short answer. And it was also a lot of, like, who knows who that knows who. My sister is is a mentee of, of Elaine. Michael Eric Dyson was my professor at Georgetown. And then there was a lot of like, okay, you met this person that knows that person and and let's try to make it work. That was work that was done over the course of probably a full year. So it took a long time, particularly, I mentioned to somebody else the other day that it takes a while to get to Diddy. So if you're trying to get to Diddy, you should start early. But I'm really happy with how it all turned out. It's a really excellent collection. I don't know what to call it. And you kind of mentioned that at the start of the book, it's that, is it, you know, a collection of essays? Is it an anthology? What is it? It's, it's a lot of things. You call it a scrapbook. And I think that it is really thoughtful, really considered, a really kind of astute analysis of race and class in the US and what the different, different kind of stories of that. And I think that it's a really, really excellent book and one that I'm grateful to have read. So thank you for, for doing it and thanks for coming on the show to chat about it. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and this was a great conversation. I appreciate it. Cole Brown is a writer and the author of Grey Boy, Finding Blackness in a White World. It's published through Arcade Publishing, available online wherever you buy your books while in lockdown. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nation's land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.